0: Thank you, Johnny. Uh, It's a real privilege to be able to open God's word tonight. Uh, Let me just ask for the Lord's help as we turn to it now. Our God and Father, please, as we turn to your word now, to your truth, to the truth, uh, would you give us hearts that are ready to listen and uh, change in response to your word. Uh, We ask for your blessing upon this time, in Jesus' name. We've been working our way through uh, Matthew's gospel, um, and hopefully that has been a blessing to you. And tonight we reach Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. So do open up uh, your Bibles to that chapter if you have a a Bible with you. Um, And and just to begin with, I want to ask you a question. What comes to mind when you hear the word ambition? What comes to mind when you hear the word ambition? Do you think of successful people, perhaps, like uh, the likes of Bill Gates, perhaps, or Roger Federer, maybe, if you're a tennis fan, or Oprah Winfrey, Maybe it's those who have prestigious jobs, doctors, lawyers, academics, investment bankers, people like that. In our culture in particular, we tend to admire ambitious people, don't we? I think we often want to be like them. They seem to get a lot done. They seem to be driven and determined to achieve their goals. And often it seems like they have a real sense of purpose, don't they? Something they're seeking after, something they're driving towards. But I think we're also aware, if we're honest with ourselves, that a misdirected ambition can be a dangerous thing, can't it? Selfish ambition can end up warping people's character. It can cause them to trample over the top of other people to get themselves where they want to get. Selfish ambition can be, as C.S. Lewis suggested, part of that long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. And it's a story that often ends in bitterness and despair. And so when we start thinking about that, maybe you begin to wonder, well, then should Christians even be ambitious? And if so, what does Christian ambition look like? I think our passage today helps us think through those really important questions. So let's read Matthew 6, verses 19 to 34 together. I mentioned that we're going through a series in Matthew's Gospel, and we've actually reached uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, It's a sermon that Jesus gave that's become quite famous, where he outlines some of his core uh, teaching, or some of the core teaching of the Christian faith. Uh, And in the sermon, Jesus is effectively describing what life looks like in the kingdom of God. He's saying, if you become a Christian, and if you become part of God's family, well, this is how you'll think, this is how you'll act, And this is how you relate to your heavenly Father, and and actually also to your Christian brothers and sisters. And what we see as we look at the Sermon on the Mount is that life in God's kingdom is designed to be beautiful. It's a place where people love doing what is right, where people love one another, where they even love their enemies, in fact. It's a place where people keep their promises, where they care for those in need, where they don't show off, they don't act hypocritically. And it turns out it's a place of peace and contentment. And at its heart, it's a place where Jesus is acknowledged as king, where God is obeyed, loved, and trusted. And in this particular section of the Sermon on the Mount, we see Jesus focus in on this idea of ambition. And he shows us that there actually is such a thing as healthy ambition, as Christian ambition. In fact, he shows us that Christians actually should be ambitious. God is ambitious, for you as, as a Christian. Did you realize that? But actually, that ambition has to be directed towards the right things. And so our passage asks us, in effect, to consider four questions. And they're questions which can help us diagnose whether we have the right sort of ambition in life, and then they can help us reorientate ourselves should we find our ambition to be misplaced. So here are the four questions. Number one, where's your treasure? Number two, how's your eyesight? Number three, who's your master? And number four, why are you worried? Let's look at each of them in turn. Where's your treasure then, to begin with? In life, we're all accumulating treasure, aren't we? It can take a wide variety of forms, from the money in our bank accounts, to the cars in our driveway, to the clothes in our wardrobe, to the furniture in our house. Perhaps for you it's technology, maybe it's the latest Apple product, the new Garmin watch perhaps if you're a runner the latest games console or maybe you're more about the accumulation of experiences it's visiting beautiful places all over the world it's going to concerts, listening to your favorite artists attending the big sporting events eating your way around Northern Ireland's top restaurants perhaps most of us are accumulating treasure of one kind or another and those things I've listed, they're good things, aren't they? They're things that we can give thanks to God for as we enjoy them. But in verses 19 to 21, we're challenged by the words of Jesus. They kind of hit me right between the eyes, if I'm honest. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Man, those words cause us to examine ourselves, don't they? Where am I storing up treasure? What kind of treasure am I really ambitious for? Earthly or heavenly? Do I have an unhealthy focus on building treasure that's not gonna last? Things that will eventually break or get outdated or be lost or stolen? Treasure that will disintegrate or evaporate as inflation bites and the economy struggles? Am I focused on building treasure that will stand the test of time, that will last right into eternity? It's important to note that Jesus isn't saying here that we shouldn't have private property. That's a helpful caveat. We should plan sensibly for the future. The Bible would encourage that. It's not saying that we shouldn't enjoy God's good gifts and and give thanks for them. Rather, Jesus is urging us, isn't he, to reject the materialism so prevalent in our society, The overvaluing of temporary stuff, which as one writer helpfully put it, tethers our heart to earth. And so as I thought about this passage, I, I started thinking, well, where is my heart tethered? Is it tethered to my bank account? Is it tethered to our investment portfolio, to our cars, to our house, to our clothes, to our family? Where is my heart? What has my heart Let's be honest with ourselves. Because Jesus says here that our treasure actually reveals the location of our heart. And it can't be two places at once. In a billion years from now, I wonder if we'll regret not accumulating more money. I don't think we will. I think we'll give thanks for every moment that we, cho- we chose to build treasure in heaven. And the obvious question then arises, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to build heavenly treasure? Well, when we die, as we're all very aware, we can't take physical things with us. But there are things we can do on earth, the Bible tells us, God's word tells us, that will resonate right into eternity. The Bible talks about the fact that we can cooperate with God's Holy Spirit as he does a building project in our lives, a project to make us more and more like Jesus if we're Christians. He develops what the Bible describes as fruit within us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And that is fruit that will last for eternity. We can grow to know and to love the Lord Jesus more and more with each passing day, for that is a relationship that will last right into eternity. We can show consistent love and care to our Christian brothers and sisters. Perhaps we can use our material resources to bless and minister to their needs. There are many Christians in this country and around the world, as we well know, who have far less than we have. And surely the Lord has blessed us so that we can be a blessing to them. We're called to care for the needy. And that type of service resonates eternally. We can also share the good news of Jesus with those who don't yet know and love him. A million years from now, you might be worshipping the Lord Jesus alongside someone you've shared the gospel with. What a joy that would be. Jesus tells us to be ambitious, absolutely. But be ambitious for the right kind of treasure, treasure that will not spoil or fade. He urges us to tether our hearts to heaven. That's question one. Question two, how's your eyesight? This is the next diagnostic question we're asked. And here Jesus uses a metaphor about physical sight to help communicate an important truth about spiritual sight. Let's see what he says in verse 22. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is that darkness? Jesus describes the eye as a lamp, which when healthy gives light to the whole body. A healthy eye fills a person with light so they're able to understand where they are and able to walk safely through life, navigating its various obstacles. In contrast, an unhealthy eye is like a lamp clouded over. The glass has maybe been covered over And light can hardly penetrate through. And so the person is full of darkness. They're disorientated. They cannot see where they're going. And they're likely to stumble and fall. And the point Jesus is making is not really about physical sight at all. He's making a point about our spiritual eyesight. He's saying, what does that look like? What do your spiritual eyes look like? Healthy spiritual vision has a single purpose and an undivided loyalty. A gaze fixed on serving God and building his kingdom, making that our highest calling and primary ambition. And when that happens, Jesus seems to indicate here that our lives are flooded with light. What does that mean? Well, I think it means that that we know how best to live in a world that's crooked and corrupt. We can see clearly how to navigate through the trials and troubles of life. We understand how to honor God with our money, with our career, with our homes. We, we get what that looks like. We know what real generosity looks like. And in contrast, if our eyes are unhealthy, if they've clouded over maybe due to our materialism, well, then what happens is, is the opposite. We find ourselves increasingly moving into moral darkness. 1 Timothy 6.10 puts it like this. For the love of money is the root of all evil. When people are ambitious for for money and material things over and above everything else, when those things become primary, God's word tells us they often end up becoming greedy, selfish, and unkind. They trample over others to get what they want. Uh, Perhaps they even take pleasure in the failure of others and cannot celebrate their success. You see, they've lost sense of what really matters in life. They start worrying and obsessing about unimportant things, things which aren't really of eternal significance. And Jesus is showing us here that that's a dangerous place to be because we can end up blind even to our own materialism. You know, greedy people generally don't think that they're greedy. So Jesus tells us to examine our own spiritual eyesight. Do we have a single-minded ambition for his kingdom? Do we have an undivided loyalty To him? Is your life being flooded with his moral light or filled with darkness? Question three. The third diagnostic question this passage asks us is this Who's your master? Jesus is clear that we cannot serve both God and money simultaneously, it's not possible to be devoted to both. Imagine you've just graduated from university here in Belfast and you start a grad scheme with a local firm, maybe a local tech company, and you arrive on your first day and you're all dressed up smart and you're ready to go, hit the ground running, and you're introduced to your team. And there's maybe a number of other analysts who look equally nervous, a manager and a couple of senior managers, and you're like, that's a bit odd, I don't know how that dynamic's going to work. And sh- slowly but surely, you realize it's not going to work. One of the senior managers tells you that you're going to have to head down to the Dublin office for a day on Monday. It's vital training. You've got to be there. A short time later, the other senior manager says, Oh, there's a big client in London. We need you to go there on Monday. It's a crucial project. You've got to be there. And already you're starting to feel really awkward, aren't you? Because you want to please everyone, but you can't be two places at once. You can't obey both senior managers. And what Jesus is saying, is actually stronger than that, isn't it, really? Because he's referring to slaves and masters rather than employees and managers. But he's saying a slave cannot be devoted to two owners at the same time. One will always have his primary devotion. And he's making the simple point that we cannot divide our loyalty between God and money. It's impossible. One will always take priority. And in fact, if we try to do both, we've actually already made money our master since God cannot be served with anything less than our whole hearts and with our full devotion. Later in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says the first and greatest commandment is this, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. God requires us to love him with everything that we have, with all of our being. In fact, we're created to love him like that. It's actually when we're at our most joyful, our most satisfied, when we love him like that. It's what we're created for. But how often do we split our loyalties? God can have Sunday, but, but weekdays are for making money. I'll, I'll prioritize God when my bank account is healthy, when I've made it up the career ladder, maybe when I'm in my 30s, maybe my 40s. Uh, but money's the priority until then, until I'm comfortable enough to have kids and raise a family, until I'm secure, I I say these things because I've thought like that, right? I understand that thought process. And we don't articulate it quite so bluntly, but in practice I think that's how many of us live. And ultimately it's a question of worth, isn't it? Which master is worthy of being served wholeheartedly? Is it the creator, the one who, who formed us in the womb, the one who will still exist a million years from now? The one who loves us unto death and who longs to bring us joy? Or is it material things that are going to rot, that don't care and cannot care about our ultimate joy? Who's worthy of our devotion? Which master are you ambitious for? Which master are you serving? And so we reach our final question. Why are you anxious? Did you notice that Jesus starts verse 25 with the word, therefore, therefore? Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life. He's linking back to everything that he's just said. Only once we come to see the value of storing up treasure in heaven, only once we come to see the the, the moral light that comes with having healthy spiritual eyes, only once we come to see the worth of serving God alone as master, will we be in the right place to consider this final question. Therefore, I tell you, Do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. We live in a highly anxious world, don't we? Duncan touched uh, on that a little bit in his, his talk to the kids. And at present, things seem particularly volatile, don't they? From the cost of living crisis to wars in Ukraine and the Middle East, from the pandemic to fears about climate, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? And it can feel overwhelming at times. And the truth is that many of us live with an overwhelming fear of the future. And maybe that's you tonight. Well, if it is you, listen carefully then to the words of Jesus as he reassures our quivering hearts. In this final section, he gives us two main reasons not to be anxious as Christians. The first is that life is more than the material. You see that in verse 25. Is not life more than food, and the body more than clothes? This is, in effect, a summary of everything Jesus has been saying so far in this section, isn't it? He's driving home the point that life in its truest sense is eternal. And so life in its truest sense is designed to be lived for eternal things. You know, if this world just is a a closed system, if this world is all there is, if Jeremy Clarkson is right, When he says of death, I know I'm going to be in a hole where I I shall rot and I shall be there forever. If that's true, if that really is the end, then anxiety for this earthly treasure we've talked about makes sense, doesn't it? Because your happiness and comfort is really what life's all about. It's all you have, ultimately. But if there is something more, if there is a life through and beyond death, eternal life in an eternal kingdom, And if we can build treasure in that world, well then we can relax and have peace about material stuff. It doesn't define our existence, does it? Life is more than the material. And secondly, Jesus reassures us, your father cares for all your needs. If you've turned from your sin and selfishness and trusted in him, become a Christian, Received his forgiveness and rescue, then you've been welcomed into his family, and you can call God your father. And if you read the Bible, you see that he is a kind and loving father. And while life is so much more than the material, we see in this passage he also cares about our physical needs. And so, to reassure our anxious hearts, he points us to two uh, things in the natural world. He says, Look at the birds. I'm sure many of us have been for a walk in the countryside on a beautiful spring morning and we've seen uh, a little robin or sparrow darting in and out of the hedgerows. We've heard the birdsong and it's it's relaxing, isn't it? It's, It's peaceful. The birds seem busy yet somehow carefree and it's nice just to watch them. They haven't sown or reaped or stored away in barns but their daily needs are met by our kind and generous Father. God provides for them with the food they need for each day. He cares about those little birds. The creator of the universe cares about a little sparrow. Jesus' argument goes like this. If he cares about a little sparrow or a little bird, how much more valuable are you, his precious child? So trust in his goodness, trust in his provision, provision, and don't worry. And what's more, can any one of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life, says Jesus. He points us to the birds and then he points us to the flowers of the field. Maybe you've had a wander around the, the rose garden there in Botanic or walk through a field of wildflowers on a summer's day. And maybe you've noticed how beautifully dressed the flowers are, intricately and delicately woven together. If this is how God dresses the flower, fleeting and temporary though they are, here today and gone tomorrow, if God cares enough to dress them Though they're temporary with beauty, how much more will he care for the needs of you, his child? I wonder if you realize tonight how valuable you are to God. Did you see that little phrase in verse 26? Are you not much more valuable than they? You are far, far more valuable than both the bird and the flowers. And maybe tonight you don't feel valuable. You don't feel ambitious, you just feel anxious, you just feel alone in a world that's pretty dark. You just feel like maybe I can just put one foot in front of another. Well, know this, the Lord Jesus has died that you might be his treasure. He died so that you might be brought into his family, into his kingdom, this new society, the Sermon on the Mount describes, this Christian counterculture Jesus has died to rescue you from shallow ambition, from building treasure that will rot. He's died so that your life might be flooded with moral light rather than the darkness of materialism. He's died so that you might give him your undivided loyalty and love and know the boundless joy and peace that such intimacy can bring. So then in light of what Christ has done to make us his treasure, we're called to set our hearts on what is truly valuable and not to be anxious about material things. In fact, to leave them with our heavenly father and rest. We're called to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. What does that mean? Seek first his kingdom and righteousness. What's that about? Well, it begins at the very moment we humble ourselves before God and turn from sin and selfishness and submit to Christ's kingship over our lives. That's the moment we become part of God's kingdom. And I wonder if you've ever done that tonight. Have you humbled yourself before King Jesus? But that's only the beginning of the story, right? Having trusted in Christ, we then seek his rule and reign throughout every area of our lives and throughout our world. The Bible teacher John Stott describes seeking God's kingdom like this. Such a desire will start with ourselves until every single department of our life, home, marriage and family, personal morality, professional life and business ethics, bank balance, tax returns, lifestyle, citizenship, is joyfully and freely submissive to Christ. The gospel is all-encompassing, isn't it? Seeking God's kingdom then continues outside of ourselves as we look to share the good news of Jesus with family and friends and colleagues. It continues as we look to support mission around the world. We have seen the beauty of the kingdom and therefore we cannot help telling others about the king. At its heart, seeking first God's kingdom is having a longing for God's glory and for the glory of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's having an ambition to show the world how beautiful and magnificent God is. It's having a passionate desire that all might ascribe to the Lord the glory due to his name, that all might worship him and know know the boundless joy and delight that results. So may God save us from shallow ambition and may God tether our hearts to heaven. And so... May we seek first his kingdom and his righteousness for there is no greater ambition and may we leave the worries of each day in his loving hands for there is no safer place. Let's pray. O righteous Father, would you Save us from shallow ambitions, from ambitions that are far too weak. May we instead seek to store up treasure in heaven. Oh Lord, give us a single-minded ambition for your kingdom. May we see Jesus as the only master worthy of our service and of our devotion. Father, we know that Christ died so that we might become your treasured possession so that we might have forgiveness and a rich welcome into your kingdom. Lord, we have been blessed beyond our comprehension, undeserving sinners though we are. And so, Lord, may we respond to all you've taught us tonight through your word by seeking first your kingdom and your righteousness. Lord, give us a wholehearted ambition for the glory of your great name and help us to leave our many anxieties and fears in your loving hands, for we know that you care.